Hello, hello, and welcome to the Finding the Unicorn in You podcast. What a beautiful day to inspire lives. My name is Dr. Jaime Cabrera-Dagosa, your host, and I'm so excited to have you here. Let's get ready to meet some fantastic unicorns and learn how to unleash the innate unicorn in you. Let's get started. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Finding the Unicorn in You. Today, I have a clinical social worker, owner of the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change, and an international expert on interpersonal communication. He has focused his training and consultation on creating change and improving outcomes for professionals, organizations, and the community that they serve. So without further ado, let's welcome Casey Jackson. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. So for the audience that doesn't know, I actually met Casey through a training. He was conducting a motivational interviewing training for myself and also my staff. And we were just so engaged and captivated by not only the way he presented the information, the way he taught it, and then just, it was so good. So Casey, for the listeners that don't know what motivational interviewing is, what is it and how did you get into it? So it's it's an evidence-based practice. It was born out of the addiction substance use world in terms of a new way to interact with people that started generating better outcomes. And so it's, I teach motivation as a method of communication that's fundamentally designed to help people change behavior. Um, instead of the kind of traditional Western medical model or kind of what was born out of colonialization and just that hierarchy, motivation just goes to a person first perspective and helps people get very clear about their values and help them navigate ambivalence or just struggles they have internally by helping them revisit where their values are at and move the professional out of the expert role and more into uh, how can I communicate in a way to help this individual be who they want to be as they define themselves. Okay. And I jumped the gun. I usually like to have the guests talk about themselves, but I'm just so excited about am I? <laughs> you got the right person. I'm excited about it too. So let's take a step back. So tell us a little bit about you and how do you even get, how do you even get into this field? I just, I knew from a young age, a relatively young age, I got selected in high school to go to this thing called Natural Helpers. And it was a week long retreat of kind of how to become a peer counselor. And it just, it changed my life. I thought I could not, Jamie, I could not comprehend that I could draw down a paycheck by helping people. I couldn't, I always thought just at that age, I was either a doctor, a lawyer, or some, just the things that are sent out in front of you. I couldn't conceptualize that I could actually make a living helping people feel better. Like it just didn't, it never crossed my mind in high school. So I, it was pretty easy. I went straight through college, went straight and got my bachelor's, went straight from my bachelor's to my master's. And I didn't stress much over school because I just knew that I just needed initials after my name to be able to do what I wanted to do. So I always had wanted to work with teenagers who were struggling. I'm so focused on that at the beginning with mental health and substance use with adolescents and families. And then my practice just evolved from there. And I got into working with incarcerated individuals, adults who had been incarcerated in state and federal prison and, and then started becoming more exposed to just system injustices and marginalization and racism. And, um, especially working in the, in with a formerly incarcerated incarcerated individuals. And I just wanted to make more of a systems different. That's, that's how my profession evolved. So I love the one-on-one work that I got to do clinically, but I just became really passionate about trying to make some system change as well too. So. 
Yeah. A and career. MI is such a, it's a topic that can pretty much be applied in any industry, I think, but then even in yes. and out of the career field. Like, yes. I know we did a couple examples while we were taking your course, but what are, what have been some impactful kind of like scenarios that personally that you've gone through you while utilizing MI? On the, well, on a personal level for me, personally, just applying MI in my own life, it's completely transformed my life. It's made me a better partner. It's made me a better parent. It's made me a better friend because the fundamental model, it's not a therapy. I don't, that's why I don't push it as a therapy technique. Although some people do, I just, it's a way of how do we help ourselves get our behavior in line with our values. There's so much chaos in the world and so many frustrating situations politically or socially that I can get wrapped up in, but sometimes I think that my behavior was part of the problem and not part of the solution. And I did, that's not who I want to be. So with motivational interviewing, the constructs, the way that I look at them, it's how do I ensure that my behaviors align with my values and not blame other people, not make excuses, just how do I step up and be who I say I want to be and operate in a way that really aligns with that values-based perspective. So that's had profound impact in my personal life. And then professionally, even just and ironically, just today, this morning, I got an email from this group that I've been working with for um, over a year now, very unique app for you understand you know, in your role, there's so many applications, but this was one, one of the most complex applications of MI. It's an organization I work with and they um, are the ones responsible for gathering organs uh, from organ donors. And it is a way more complex process yeah. than you would think and all sorts of things. It's completely changed their organization around where they've gotten immersed in MI. So they're, they're sharing stories that are that today. I got one that just made me emotional because it was like, I cannot believe the difference that it's making in human lives by people thinking and communicating differently. Yeah. And what you're doing is amazing just because sharing this knowledge of how, because that's what it is effect, effectively communicating with other people and showing them like yeah. listening and actually having a good dialogue. I think a lot of us go through life without really knowing how to talk to others. It's very me focused. Yeah. And when we take the me out of yeah. it, <laughs> you'll be amazed of the simplicity of communication. <laughs> it is, it, that's so true because we just, in general, we tend to be a little bit more self-centered you know, as creatures and to be other person centered opens up all these different cultural reality, you know, just any other human being in the way that they've operated, the way they've grown and the trauma they've experienced or the successes they've experienced, we get to access that and help them maximize their potential in a very smart, strategic and skillful way. That's very humanistic at the same time. So yeah, it's <laughs> clearly there's a reason I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And you do something unique that you don't see a lot out there. So not only is MI efficient in itself, but you add a trauma-informed kind of like practice into it too. So can you talk a little bit about the difference? As a clinician, and Jamie, I think this makes sense to you as well. What would happen is I got more and more skilled at motivational interviewing. There's times that I would land these pretty deep or complex or provocative reflections. And I just remember when I'd be looking at the individual, when I'd land these reflections or this empathy, I could just see different things flicker inside of their brain or inside of behind their eyes. And I knew their brain was actually thinking in a different way. And I could see the struggle. The brain was trying to think in a different way. Like, how do I deal with this situation differently and can see 
in that thought process that they want to be able to navigate this relationship differently, or they don't want to have the same level of reactivity that they have because of the trauma they've experienced or the stress they've been under. So to be able to see that and then be able to use motivational interviewing as a method of communication that you know that when you open your mouth, it's pinging off the brain. And if I'm going to open my mouth and it's going to ping off the brain, can I be more mindful about what's pinging off of the brain and what it creates inside of that brain? Can I use language to try to create more of a restorative process that's not, again, I keep trying to move away from a hierarchical medical model, but how do you help that individual's brain do repair from within versus more traditional ways that we think about going about doing the a trauma-informed approach? And I look at EMDR and I think that's closer, a phenomenal, effective evidence-based practice, but this is a linguistics um, how do we use language to to help do some restoration for trauma? Yeah. And I think one of the things that stood out from my training with you was that you mentioned that I think most of us want to help, want to be able to lend a hand to people, but we try to use our own experience to try to connect yes. with them versus listening to what they're going through. So you're like, oh yeah, I remember I, I went through the same thing that you did. This is what I did. You should try this but you're not, you're taking away from them. And I'll let you talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> it, there's what I think of, especially the work, all the work that you've done, there's so many evidence-based practices that are shown to be effective. Peer support is a very effective practice. It's just not correlated with long-term behavior change. So is there value that happens from somebody sharing their personal experience and feeling like, I'm not the only person on the planet that's felt this or experienced this. There, there's value to that. What it doesn't do is it doesn't necessarily resolve ambivalent. It, it means that somebody can be inspired by your story. They can be moved by it. They can relate to it. But can they catalyze that into something that creates change in their own life? That's where it's, there's not good data around that with peer support, that kind of a share my story. I want to share my story perspective. The way you catalyze behavior change is how do you get individuals to get clear and reconnect and re-embrace their own internal core values? And what would it take to happen in any given situation to get their behavior to start to move in that direction? What, what decision would you make in this relationship? What decision would you make in this job? If everything you decided to do is going to line up with what your deeper values are, what would that look like from here? That at the very least generates ambivalence versus do I agree with you or disagree with you, which is where sharing personal experience comes from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the first thing that I'm thinking about is like relationships, like personal relationships where we can start implementing this a little bit more and then really finding that share value versus just telling you this is what I want or this is what you want type of thing. That's it. And in my personal relationship as a parent and as a partner, the biggest conversion I had to move through with myself, because I believe in this model so much, is their behavior in line with my values uh, or is their behavior in line with their values? And it's a very jagged pill to swallow because I fundamentally want their behavior to be in line with my values and the way I would deal with it. But that doesn't always generate a healthy interaction. And it is that conflict in terms of do I want them to change to be who I want them to be, or do I love and accept them for who they are? This is what I deal with as, on a daily basis as a parent of, oh, there's things I want them to do or things I want them to experience, but that's even a self-centered perspective. No, it's just like, 
they are here for their reason. And I want to perpetuate that. And I believe in that philosophically, but does my language and my communication with them represent that? And that was rough in the beginning to go, ah, I don't want to be that parent. And then it's like, then why are you being that parent? If you don't want to be that parent, if you believe in them as a human being, then how do you clear the path that they get clear who they are? Yeah. And I've tried practicing this with my mom and my sister where I try to be, I try to listen more. I try to really use MI more, more frequently with them so that they feel like they're being heard and they see that I'm not trying to change them, but I'm really trying to understand them. And it's been such a phenomenal shift in me doing that where I used to be, and I still am in a sense internally, I always wanted to be right. I've always wanted to win the argument, but once I shifted, Oh, I get that. Well. Especially when they say something that I'm like, oh, that wasn't really correct. I'm just going to let it slide. But <laughs> but once you do that shift and really seeing the values and seeing where it's coming from and what what's the root of that behavior, it makes big change. It just changes the nature of how, where they're giving dialogue. If you step in the equation, you're going to have a back and forth dialogue. It's just math. But if you pull yourself out of the equation, they're having the conversation with themselves in front of you. And that's where you help people work through their own ambivalence. And that, that's such a primary function of motivational interviewing is I'm trying to get out of this dialogue between the two of us and go, how do I access this brain that if they were laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, how, what do we do or how do we navigate that so we're making the best possible decisions that really move us and help us grow and evolve as an individual and, and can i orchestrate that without being in the room with them that's what mi is when you're skilled at mi you can create those experiences yeah and i do want to tell listeners that it's not something that it's a you take a one, one class and it's a one and done it takes consistent practice and even when you think i think i got it you'll get thrown someone who's gonna just flip your whole world upside down <laughs> That is so true. So true. Because it is, we just did, there's things that'll trigger us. And it, one of the things that Dr. William Miller, who developed MI, I love one of the things that he says is what you just talked about right there, Jamie, it genuinely comes from a heart of wanting to help. So it's not from a bad place. When I, again, interpersonal relationships as a son, as a brother, as a friend, as a partner, it, when we are jumping in with our advice or our opinions, the vast majority of time, it's just because we want to help. So it seems so ironic that when we're operating from a heart of wanting to help, that could actually have an effect that generates the opposite reaction that, that all of a sudden now we're in an argument or a disagreement, or there's tension Well, that's not why I stepped into this conversation or I'm confused because then why did you bring this up? And why are you telling me this? If you don't want me to give you my advice, I think we, we run into those on just a daily basis with people we care about. Yeah. I completely agree. And it just, we have to use the methodology and really, we have the right intention. It's just like execution that needs to change. That's exactly it. And that's why of all the things that I learned, you know, I've been in the social work field for shoot, 35 years now and as a clinician and of that, I've never found anything that's more effective for communicating than this method. And the further down the rabbit hole I go with it, the more expansive my perspective gets. That's why I expanded from just MI to looking at motivationing and trauma. And now I'm looking at motivationing from just systems of abuse and racism and marginalization and poverty and 
that's just wow. There's so many things where our behaviors are not in line with what we say our values are, and then we find all sorts of justifications for why we do the things we do and say the things we say, even though the, the byproduct of that is we're doing damage to other human beings. If you're operating from your best intention, there's got to be a way to do that that's not causing damage to other human beings, and actually that it's actually doing some restorative repairing work. Yeah, and yeah. And I think a lot of the thing, it's reconditioning what we've learned in the past, because a lot of the, the communication methods that we've learned are, like you said, it's all about us and self-centered. And we need to really rewire those and get trained and training in classes such as the ones that you teach and similar ones so that we can really do that self-work. Because if you have to really do that reflective stance of, am I the problem after every argument? <laughs> so it's, it's not that every person that is out to get you, but maybe you are not communicating effectively with people. So you need to change that. That's it. And, and when you think about it, it, it's like, where did we learn good communication skills? It's not like we were born with good communication. It's not like our families necessarily, we had communication that worked within our family systems. We had communication that worked within a school system or an academic system or within a work environment. We have communication that works it doesn't mean it's effective to help other human beings. So we just do our best then. This really does look at the research on what is the most effective way to help people get out of conflict and get to resolution in a healthy and happy way where there's a sustained change that's involved. That's just a different way of thinking. Yeah. It's a different way of communicating for no, sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And like in my personal work, like for my business that I do, Major, I want to say 80% of the clients that come to me are having somewhat of a communication issue. And it's either they're assuming or they're, they are just not properly communicating what they're feeling or they're afraid of confrontation because of the experience they've had with bad communication in the past. That's exactly it. It's that fear of conflict. It's the fear of confrontation. So you have people that are just struggling internally, trying to hang on in a relationship or trying to do the right thing. And just going in circles in their head going, I don't want to create conflict. I love you. I care about you. Why do we have to fight about this? But it just feels like they can't find the off ramp in those conversations. Either we don't have the conversation, which is not healthy, or we have the conversation and ends up in a bad place, which is not healthy. And I think that's where people just find, feel a sense of desperation or I don't know what to, I love this person. And why can't we communicate when we love each other so much? Yeah. And it's. It's a simple concept to understand, but it's a practice that you can to continually work on in order for you to really grasp it. And yes. you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to get it hundred percent every time, but as long as you keep going, it'll get better. Exactly. And as long as you're open to listening, people will talk. Mm -hmm. And if you can listen without judging them, people who doesn't want to find somebody that they can talk to, that will just listen to them and not judge them and just get a hold of what this, where this person's coming from without needing to jump in and make it about them. Exactly. It's, that's a great space to create for someone else. Now for one of the listeners, let's say that they're going through a communication situation. Let's just say maybe with their parents, you know, that they feel like they just don't, they keep butting heads and they just can't get their point across. What's a simple technique they can do to kind of at least get the conversation started? There's. From healthy communication, so many people know this, but it is, the research shows it's one of the most effective things is seek first to understand. Is, you know, if you're trying to get your point across, I can almost guarantee it's going to generate tension. And so if you can just set your point down for three or four minutes, five minutes, 
and listen to the other person's worldview, not to argue, not to strengthen your case, not to figure out the angle that you can take after you've said your piece, but can you just your, your point down and listen to where their brain is coming from? And even if you disagree with them, just going, why is their brain thinking this way? And if their brain is thinking that way, you can keep trying to make your point, but you're just not going to be able to make your point. It may be a thing that it's like, now's not the time or now's not the place. And I just don't want to generate conflict. So in MI, the way we look at that is just what is deep, accurate empathy. But I think a term that most people are used to is seek first to understand before you try to make your point or prove your point. Exactly. And the... If you really pay attention, sometimes what you think is the problem is not really the problem. Like it could be rooted through something else, but they're using this as an extension to be able to like, hear me out. This is just an example of what I'm feeling, but we're so focused on whatever we're, our point is and how we are right and how what I said is actually should be the right way. We completely miss that point so i think that's a great advice just sit back and just listen and really try to understand where are they coming from where is this pain or this concern coming from and i teach my staff and the clients that i work with this every single day always assume that the other person is coming with a good intention if you start thinking that people are coming from malice then and you're going to bias the result and that is the basis jamie for self-fulfilling prophecy if you think they're coming at you sideways, there's going to be conflict no matter what, because you're just prepped and defended for it. Now, that's such a smart thing to think of. And I think when you compare that, where you, when you link that, high accurate empathy, operate from a positive intention, you think they have a positive intention. When you're listening or seeking to understand, if you listen, what do you think this person's deeper values are? You know, they probably want connection. They probably are trying to operate from the same level of integrity that you try to operate from. They just want to have some security in their life. Like the same things that we all want. We may not agree with the path or approach they're taking to get there, but as you listen and seek to understand, if you listen more deeply to what this person's values are, their deeper values are, you're probably closer to the same page than you think you are. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And we just have to really pay attention to those details and really get out of our heads. Like you said, like before that tunnel vision really narrows our way of thinking. So we need to expand it, get out of the box and really pay attention to like facial gestures, the tone of voice, what's, I really think we're, what's going on. And one of the things I like about just your, this concept of fighting your unicorn, you know, just looking into a little bit of the, of what you do and what you're trying to create is, I think if you're going to look for validation outside of yourself, I think this is where tension comes in because we want people to agree with this. But if you really want to be able to find that sense of self and that sense of personal agency. You do have to find that inside of what are your values and how are you going to navigate your life? You can't look for that outside of yourself. Um, but if you're looking for that validation, if it's not going to be as easy to, as you're going to find it from within, you've got to find it. You've got to believe in yourself to be able to, to be able to move forward with that. Take stock at that. Yes, I could. And then from that point forward, yeah, from that point forward, then is your behavior aligning with that? Is everything that you say is your behaviors and your actions? Are they aligning with you believe yourself to be? Completely agree. Couldn't have said it better. And I think what you said right there is, I think a lot of us are so used to seeking validation because as we grew up, we always had validation from our parents, from our teachers, from people around us. But now when they kick us out of the nest and we become full-fledged adults, we don't have that validation anymore. And sometimes we don't get that validation from our peers, our supervisors, 
So we need to seek it from within and show us that we are enough. We're doing the best we can based on the knowledge that we have. And let's continue growing and expanding and just being open to other worldviews, to other people's opinions and seeing what we can learn from them versus trying to convince them that you're the one that's always right. And this is something I consistently tell my staff is you need to always bring value to every conversation that you have. Don't have a mean, a meaningless and pointless conversation. Always try to bring as much value as you can. Doesn't mean that you need to shove your opinion in, but try to really be, listen to what what's going on and seeing how can I make this a rich experience for both of us. Well, and when you talk about that too, what clicks with me, Jamie, is that part of that validation, I think what gets so much more complex is in a social media world, so many people, especially younger generations, are just looking for that validation out in the ethers from social media that's not real. It's not substantive. And the people I think that we genuinely crave, at least I know I genuinely crave, is a real person that can come at me in a real and genuine and authentic way. So the more clean and clear you get with yourself and the more that you take stock and invest in yourself and get clear, what are my values and do I have the integrity to try to keep my behavior aligned with my values in every interaction. I think that's what so many people in this world are seeking is just somebody that's real and has substance. And are they who they say they are? Do they do what they say they're going to do? Do they act in a way that they expect other people to act? And I think when we find that that's so rare that it's like, that's a person I want to spend time with or have in my life more, not just because they have a thousand followers. It's just like, it's just like that. And so I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's going to stick over generations, but I think that's what still the vestiges of people just want a real person that's just, or that's not playing for everybody else, but just really is clear who they are as a person and sticks with that consistently. I agree. And a lot of us want to be liked. We want to be known. We want to leave an impact, but we start to jeopardize and compromise our sense of self because we're trying to be a person that people, they, we feel they're, and I think that's the the thing is like when I go out and speak with people or a network or I'm just doing my day to day job, I try to be myself 100% of the time. I try not to say what I think people are going to. I'm going to say things whether they agree or disagree, but in a respectful manner and always be open to what they have to say and listen. And I get the response, like you said, is, wow, this guy's being himself. He's not trying to convince me of something. He's not trying to like push me towards whatever his agenda is. I just don't go with an agenda. I just have to be myself and people, regardless of what I do, there's going to be people that like me and people that don't like me. And I don't need validation to, to show my worth. I know my worth and just going, but I think social media does affect us in that sense of where our value is the number of likes we get in every video and picture. <laughs> That's it. And at the end of the day, there's just something that I don't know, I can just speak for myself that I know at the end of the day, there's a sense of homecoming when I'm laying in bed at night, just going, today was a good day. What I was able to create, the way I showed up, the level of transparency and honesty and vulnerability, it just made people around me feel healthier and happier. And I may never see them again, but it's just, oh, there's other humans that communicate this way and that are just trying to operate from that place of just being honest and transparent and come from a place of love and compassion, even if we don't agree that it's just like, this is just me speaking my truth. 
And, and this is a truth as people <laughs> get annoyed when I say it, but it's like, I just know this is my truth and I don't know if it's your truth. I don't need it to be your truth. I just know it's my truth. And just knowing it's my truth, it gives me that North star that I'm going to keep walking in that direction. And that's just my North star, but I'm not saying it's right for everyone. And I think that, I think it's just helpful to be clear about that because it allows people to be who they are as they define themselves. Yeah. And the only way to find your inner truth is by really doing that reflection, really spending that time getting to know you and not be the person that other people are trying to make you sort of that society and your family and your culture has tried to make you over the years. I think we're so, especially when we're young, we're trying to make uniform, good, civil, civilized people to learn good values and stuff, but we get lost in that factory of sameness. So we need to take a step off the conveyor belt and try taking our own path. And I, that can go in so many different ways with this conversation, but just, we all go through our own, we all go yeah. through our own journey and we all go through our own path and not one path is the same way. I think a lot of people get so obsessed with comparing of was reached their mass. So it's got their doctorate degree or they have the kids and the wife, they got their own home, but there's multiple ways of success. And even the word success can be defined so many different ways, depending on the individual. So you just have to stick to your own truth, like you said, and then just follow your own path and trust that you're on the path that you have to be. And I, just when you were saying that, Jamie, I just, the more that I learn, the more I learn about diversity, the more I learn about just moving beyond my own worldview, how could we have the same path when we started different starting points? Like that doesn't even make sense when you look from that lens. It's like literally your go on your Monopoly board is such a different go than my Monopoly board. So how the heck can we have the same exact path? Like that doesn't even make sense when you look from that. We may run each other across each other like you and I have. Mathematically, in some ways, there's no way we should have ran across paths. But there's a reason we did. And because there's a certain trajectory that you and I both are on that, you know, there's a moment you cross paths with someone else. But you and I did not start from the same go. And so why would we have the same paths as far as what we're trying to achieve or trying to be like everybody else when our starting points are so different? Um, just with the families we're born into or the situations we're born into and the opportunities we're afforded or the things we're not afforded or the abuses we're suffering or it's just how can we be on the same path? Exactly. And you just remind me of an analogy that I love to use. I always say that you're born with a backpack. And some people's backpacks are already born with pebbles and other people's backpacks are empty. You were bo we both have to go up this hill of life. And for some of us, the start may be super easy because it's empty, but you don't know what travelers are going to start putting pebbles along the way. And what, and the person who started with pebbles, you don't know if maybe they're going to have a straight shoot. Maybe they did start with some disadvantages, but they avoided the people that were going to put pebbles and they didn't get into in life. So. As you're going through that journey up the hill and you're looking back, don't judge or compare yourself to the people behind you or ahead of you because you don't know what they started with. I love that. And that I think about that on so many levels because I just think about knowing that when you have privilege, you, know, you get to start with an REI backpack and you're going to have the water bottles and everything else. But the person that didn't have that is used to going a lot longer without water. And so the person who runs out of water, who's used to having all these nice things, they can't make it a day without water when somebody's not used to those things. Every path is different. And what you've been given, there's a reason you're given those challenges, you know, and if, as long as you're trying to get to the top of the mountain, 
you will find a way to get there. Everybody will find a way to get there and it may not be the same path. Completely agree. So that's why we, that there's so many different complexities and so many different factors that affects us for being us. So you just, you just can't compare yourself with anybody else's journey. So I do want to pivot into a different conversation. So you're a business owner and not only are you a business owner, but you're also a clinician. Yeah. Not many people who get their licensure yeah. or become a clinician actually decide to take the big step of becoming a business owner. So what kind of like lit that fire inside yeah. you to make that jump towards your own to, and invest in yourself? <laughs> oh, knowing what I know now, I probably still would have done it. Um, I was just thinking, I don't know if I would have done it. I, I never had uh, probably the biggest thing that lit my fire was that I just wanted to work my own hours and I didn't, I think it's what everybody thinks, Jamie, is if I ruled the world, how would I run the agency? If I got to do this, how would I do it? And I was, you know, let me put my money where my mouth is. You know, I always wanted to be in private practice. I'd been in private practice. I worked public nonprofit for years and years. It was more of a fluke how I got the business started because it was, there was a, a grant that I was on when I was working at Washington State University. There was a grant that I was part of. And one of the deliverables from this, it was a very large federal grant, is they had to produce a for-profit spinoff. And they hadn't done that by the end of the grant cycle. And it was one of the major requirements. I don't know how they dropped the ball, but they dropped the ball on that. And I was doing so much training on motivational interviewing that the grant writers came up to me who were managing and said, Hey, if we let you take all these contracts from W that are signed with WSU, where you're doing all these trainings, would you want to go out on your own and start your own business? So it was just like, that's why I didn't fight to start my own business. I didn't really have a strong desire to. But at that point it was like, yeah, this is, everything's kind of lining up. So it, it's the least favorite part of my job is running the business. I love doing the trainings, but I've been alive for 11 years and I started IFIOC, the Institute, uh, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, maybe now. And, and it's been successful because what I, this is the part I think that'll make so much sense to you is. What I told the staff when I very first started the agency was that as long as we are of service and people find what we do valuable, we will have a job. And as soon as people don't find what we do valuable, then we need to find out what we're supposed to be doing in the world to do that. So I don't know how long this agency is going to last. I don't know if we'll be here tomorrow, but as long as we are of service and providing valuable things to people, then people will probably pay for it. And as soon as they're not valuable to people, then they probably won't pay for it. So. I'm never going to fight to keep our agency open, but I will always fight to make sure people know what we do and to provide an exceptionally good product. And other than that, I know nothing about business, Jamie, nothing like And people have told me, how did you not have a business? Like, you can't run this business this way. Nobody does business this way. And it's like, I don't, I, oh, I've got the right people that know how to dot the I's and cross the T's and pay the bills and do all that other stuff. And I think we provide a really good service and a really good product and people continue to pay for that. So that's my foray into the business world. <laughs> I love that. And there's no one right way of doing business. And I had a guest prior to you who said the way you want to run business varies depending on what your, your intention is, because if you want to open several branches and extend internationally and have millions and millions of people around you and your goal is to have the seven, seven yachts and you're <laughs> parked and it's then you'll run business a certain way. But if you are going with the mindset of that, you genuinely want to help people and bring value to them, then that's going to be a whole different business model. And it's a service model. So you really have to, like you said, go back to your values. What is it that I want to, 
what's the reason that I'm building this business? What's the reason that I'm doing this? And then try to not get skewed by the money or by, by whatever other factors that may come in here and trying to change the product that you're doing. And I can tell you that the beer that you that you have is phenomenal and it is bringing a lot of value. <laughs> so you're obviously doing something great. And just hearing you say that is helpful too, because I, that was my intention is it had to be a for-profit, but I've always run it like a nonprofit. It's just, I just, it's about the service. It's about the end user. It's about phenomenal customer service. That's what I live by because I think if I ran the world, that's the kind of people that I want to do business with. If they give me exceptionally good customer service and they have a great product, you've got a customer for life. And that's honestly what my business is, word of mouth. And once people have had training, then they tend to look for more trainings from me because it's just a good experience. It's like, okay, that's worth the money. It's just like, I knowing I'm going to walk away with a good training and then I'm going to learn something and it's going to improve the quality of my life. That's what I just keep doing and our doors have stayed open. Yeah. And like I, like we talked about earlier, MI is not something that you can master off the bat. You're going to need a lot of practice. You're going to need a lot of guidance and you know what, that's the service that's going to continue to bring you, bring them back to you, especially like I've taken MI the past five years and I've done several instructors, but I'm just like, oh, like they were good, but I just I don't know. Like you can tell the intention behind they're just teaching the class to get them so you got the check versus we're teaching the class for actually wanting to have you learn and impact people. Because I feel like if this technique is utilized properly, it can make a substantial impact in people's lives, especially if you're in the service field, like it, you can literally change lives. hundred percent. It was fun watching your progression even because I didn't know you'd been through so many trainings, but I can see that you were somewhat multitasking and paying attention, but I noticed that after the first day of training, the next day there was no multitasking and you were like staring at the screen, which is like, Hey, Jamie is completely engaged now because it's like, okay, oh shit, this is not what I'd heard before. This is, wait, this is not what my brain thought this was. Like I could see your, the wheels just turning. And that's when you started asking so many questions and we're totally engaged. It was so much fun to watch that transition from literally when we did check-in to by the, you know, the start of day two, like your brain was just in a completely different place. That was fun. It's so funny and embarrassing <laughs> that you say that <laughs> just because we actually had that conversation at the end with everybody because everybody was really tired. They're like, I don't want to do this. This is like the fifth in my class we take in like <laughs> these, this is not going to be any different. But I was like, no, we need that refresh. We need to try someone new. Let's see how it goes. And by the end of the session, everybody was just like with their jaw on the floor. Like, what the heck? Everything we've learned is like nothing compared to what he just taught us. And then everybody was like, what is awesome? You can, I can just tell because awesome. my staff, their eyes are everywhere. Mine too. And I, we all agreed we're going to shut everything down and we're just going to be fully immersed into this course from now on because this is phenomenal. <laughs> That's what I hope for. And I get it because I've been on the other side and there's nothing more painful than bad training. Like it's rough. And in a position like yours or a position like mine, I just don't have time to sit through bad training. There's too many things that need to get done that I need to put my energies elsewhere. But if it's going to be good training, I will shut everything off and absorb it because I can feel there's something transformative that's going to happen. So that's why I've always tried to work on my curriculum is just imagine you're on the other side of the screen or you're in the audience and it's like, it needs to be where every minute needs to be worth my time because I don't have time to waste. I don't have resources. To, I can't send my staff to trainings that just aren't good. We all have a bunch of things on our plate. And it's, I think time is one of the most precious things that we have. 
and we need to be effective as much as possible. So, and one of the things that I love that you did in your class is that you consistently did a check-in and you're like, this is what I usually present, but if you guys don't like what I've just said, stop me so that I can reiterate it a different way. And instru most instructors don't do that. They're like, this is what the book says. This is what I'm going to teach you, like it or not. Get what you get and keep going. But, and I think that's what impacted most of us is that you constantly did that reflection and really focused on individualistic learning because not every group's going to be the same. Some people are going to get it like that and other people are just going to, you know, it may take a little bit longer and a little bit more reiterating certain things to, in order for it to click. But I'll tell you, it's the reason why I love my job so much is because I've never trained the same thing twice because it's never the same group. So it, in some ways, I don't know if it's selfish on my part. I think it really is because I love training and I want people to get it. But the beauty is I'm never bored ever. Because I don't know what people are going to ask for questions and I don't know how it's settling into any individual brain. And so for, it forces me to learn, to really know the material and understand the model because I want to be able to answer every person's question authentically and dimensionally in a way that just satiates their brain because then their brain wants to learn more. It blows me away that I've had people that sat through the train, the intro training like four or five times. And I'm always like, why do you do this? I don't, I cannot imagine why you would sit through this four or five times. They said every single time I learned something new, it's just, and everything I learn advances my basic knowledge and understanding of MI. And I can feel the quality of my life and the quality of my job improves every time. And I said, but doesn't it, they said, it's so weird that it never feels like it's the same training, even though literally your slides are the same slides. It never is the same training. And that I like that feedback too, as long as I know I'm not drifting from the material. But I think it's because of that intention to make sure that every learner feels like oh, this really helped my brain understand motivational reviewing. Well, it ties into early why they start the business. It was less about to start a business, but it's more like if people are going to pay for this, I will keep tailoring trainings because I'm in the same boat. I'm a clinician who struggled with working with really complex populations with addiction, with being unhoused, with major mental illness, with criminal backgrounds, and just trying to help people get the service they need to thrive. and our systems are just not set up to help people thrive. They're set up to punish people for not being well. And it just, I cannot be part of those systems. And that was part of wanting to have my own business as well, too. It's like, I can't talk out of both sides of my mouth of saying, yeah, we, we believe in public mental health. We believe in substance use treatment and evidence-based practices while we're abusing people at the same time. I can't reconcile that. I agree. We have to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, but for people in order to really tap into that inner unicorn and really be authentically themselves, what are some steps that you recommend people should start work on so that they can really reach their full potential? The thing I would say to anyone is truly understand what a core value is. We tend to lump a lot of things into values like I value employment or I value education or I value this or I value that, I value family. Those are not core values. It's not that those aren't important but they're not core values. Core values have to do with connection, integrity, this, a sense of peace, a sense of well-being. Those are core values, a sense of community. The clearer you get on what your core values are, that to me is the start of finding that inner unicorn. It is when you see that the values that drive you and your behavior starts to align with it, this is where I think it links what we, you and I were talking about earlier about the path and finding your path and starting different places. All the elements that make you are based on who your values are or what your values are and how you choose to embody those and move forward 
that cannot help but make you unique because what you were born with, what you came into this world with and how you're navigating the world, no one in the history of the world, in the history of this planet, in the history of humanity will taste the strawberry the same way you do or hold hands or kiss the way that you do. And, and from the life experiences you bring to that, how can you not be a unique being if you just own those things and stop trying to chase being like everybody else? It's when you find your core values and get your behavior in line with it. That is my belief for how to find your inner unicorn. And I agree a thousand percent. Like every person is so unique and every person brings something different to the table. And it's just owning it and not being ashamed for your uniqueness. If uh, listeners want to get in contact with you, book a class, or they just want to reach out and ask you some questions, how can they do? Very easy. Our website is simple. It's ifioc.com, ifioc.com. And it's just my email address is just my name. It's K-C-C-A-S-E-Y dot Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N at I-F-I-O-C dot com. And I just, I love the conversations and I love when people reach out. So I'm a very accessible person. Um, Yeah, you and I are in the same boat as terms of just trying to ignite that flame inside of people. So any ways I can do that, I'm always on board. Awesome. Thank you so much. And for listeners, I will be putting all of the links in the show notes. And also, if you want to read up more about Casey, feel free to go to my website, aragoza-consulting.com. He will show up on the Unicorn Wall of Fame. You'll see a little blog with him and all the links there as well. And just as a friendly reminder for everyone, episodes come out every Friday at 7 a.m. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Casey, thank you so much for everything. Really appreciate your time. And until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding the Unicorn in You podcast. I truly appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on your favorite platform. Keep listening, keep learning, and keep growing. Until next time, this is Dr. Jaime Gabriel Regoza signing off.